Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code HANGUP at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Get $50 towards any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash hangup and using the promo code hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of January 18th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about the divisional round of the NFL playoffs, where the Panthers, Cardinals, Patriots, and Broncos advanced, as well as the upcoming AFC Championship game matchup between Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. We'll also be joined by Puck Daddy's Greg Wyshynski to discuss his successful campaign to get enforcer John Scott voted into the NHL All-Star Game, a dream that is now in peril. And we'll be joined by economist and comedy writer Matt Hill to discuss his cartoon series in which the San Antonio Spurs are an elite commando unit. It is called Spurs Special Forces, and it is good. You should probably be watching that instead of listening to this podcast. It's not fair that economists struggle so badly Mm -hmm. they have to take second jobs as comedians. To make, to make ends meet. Other way around, Stefan. This guy was oh, headlining clubs and said, you know what? I'm going to just uh, pursue my, my economics, Jones. And then he realized, my God, comedy is a terrible economic decision. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is career counselor and author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. It's Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Oh, hi, Josh. With us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Hello, Pesca. Hello. I off. Ah! <laughs> Hello, New Mexico. Lloyd Lindsay Young, local. 
Local New York weatherman. That was his shtick. He would say hello and then say the name of a city, and everyone loved it until everyone realized this makes no sense. In the all-time ranking of weatherman shticks, I'd yeah. say that would be in the top, like, 8,000. Hello, Piscataway. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God. He said, yeah. The other weatherman shtick is like, and this guy's 103. That's Willard Scott, who's either dead or retired. I can't remember. <laughs> Do you think he woke up in the middle of the night and just said, I've got it. Piscataway. <laughs> yeah. Copague needs and to it, be said hello to. <laughs> and thus a career was made. Mm-hmm. That's what you need. Willard Scott's alive. Oh, good. That's smuck, that's smuckerific. <laughs> that's, it, that's my contribution. Yeah, no, I remember when he retired, it was covered on every NBC property. And then they would have the guy who runs Smuckers give him a heartfelt thing. But uh, the heartfeltedness was lost on me when he identified himself as Jonathan Smucker. <laughs> it was all done then. On our bonus segment, should we do weatherman shticks? Mm, that's good. It's timely. <laughs> I thought we would revisit our recent conversations about Chip Kelly. And the NFL's moved to Los Angeles in light of new information that we have received. We'll tell you exclusively where Chip Kelly will coach next season, which NFL team will move to Los Angeles. Just stay tuned for that. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangupplus. So the road teams went 4-0 in the wildcard weekend, home teams 4-0 in the divisional round, Uh, the Patriots, the Cardinals, the Panthers, the Broncos. These were all one-score games. There was one six-pointer. The other was seven. There's something uh, to be said about having a weekend where just everything goes according to plan. I like having the home teams win. Mm -hmm. The home fans are happy. There was something even deeper about the predictability of the end of the Patriots-Chiefs game as compared to the other ones. The Patriots get this lucky bounce as they're trying to run out the clock. The Chiefs... Screw up the clock management? Is that what you were going to say? Well, I've always sort of felt like criticisms of coaches. Oh, he's bad at challenges. Oh, he can't manage the clock. Oh, that guy's like... like I I feel like those are often really exaggerated and fan bases just remember the negatives with with the coach when they lose the game and not the positives. There's a butt coming. With Andy Reid. Yup. (laughs) That's the one. Should I just stop stop there? I was having the same thoughts. (laughs) It was remarkable. It was really remarkable. They get the ball with about six and a half minutes left down by two touchdowns, and they are slowly marching the ball down the field, huddling after every play. They have all three timeouts left. Maybe they just recognized that these were the last moments, minutes they were going to spend together in the 2015-16 season. Yeah, and the they p- wanted uh, to spend more time in the huddle together. The, pro- the problem is they thought it was the last hours. <laughs> <laughs> but, Mike, just there's something about the way Andy Reid looks, too, that kind of reinforces it with the walrus. bushy mm-hmm. walrus mustache. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He just looks like a guy who... Moving just, a little slow. Yeah, he's like taking his time with the clock. He probably takes a long time mowing his lawn. Mm-hmm. He, he probably doesn't right. have a, a, a rider. He uses a, a hand mower. He, he doesn't want a mustache. mustache. He's trimmer, just been right? sh- yeah, he's, mustache he's, trimmer. He's been shaving the mustache just very deliberately yeah. on a week by week basis over the last fifteen years. This is the one biggest knock on him. This is the anchoring heuristic. Oh, this will explain all others. And as with most things, you could either say there are elements of truth, or sometimes it's more true. But this is the equivalent of us saying, you know, the problem with Bill Clinton is that he just couldn't control his appetites. And every time you see Bill Clinton on the stump, he's like. Eating 
eating a cheeseburger and screwing the intern. This is what the Andy Reid analogy is. It was unbelievable. Forget if it was even Andy Reid. I would think any reasonable halfway informed football fan would just look at them huddling with two minutes or less than two minutes left and scratch their heads. If you're not scoring before, it doesn't take that much to do the backwards math. Without a timeout, the other team will run off 40 seconds. With a timeout, you could get it down to 10 and the two minute warning's a timeout. You're going from when they, so to set the stage, they're there. Chiefs player gets tackled, was it on the one or two with two and a half minutes left? Get it into the end zone. They run. They let clock run. They take it down to two minutes. They don't score immediately after the two-minute warning. It is insane. And it's, yes, a score would have taken their chances of winning from 2% to 6%. But what they did took it from 2% to 0.25%. There you go. And I think a lot of the times coaches get criticized for things that they just don't control. And But again, there's my butt. Andy Reid is the offensive coordinator and the play caller. So he is the guy who is literally keeping them from getting the plays in quickly. And there's something about, you know, not repeating mistakes from history, condemning something, repeat them, whatever. Um, this happened in a Super Bowl. He lost a Super Bowl because they kind of strolled down the field. Yes, that was in general, you're right. But you could do the dispositive math here saying you just Correct. gave your chance. You just took away your chance of winning because no, of you what don't you even did. need to have you don't even need to have lost a Super Bowl yep. to recognize the fundamental aspect of coaching football in the final minutes of a game well, when you're trailing. It's not that complicated. Two two quick things, then we'll move on. Les Miles, who is often lampooned for his kind of bumbling nature and and mistakes that he makes uh, within games. There was a game many years ago now where they lost to Ole Miss. They threw out LSU, threw out Hail Mary, and they just couldn't get to the line of scrimmage. He was calling for them to cl- to clock the ball, and the time just ran out, and it was like stupid Les Miles does mm-hmm. it again. The very next week, they played Arkansas, and they had a very similar like last-minute drive where the clock was an issue. And they had clearly practiced it, managed it perfectly, I think kicked the tying field goal and, you know, ended up going into overtime. So it's just inexplicable that a coach who is criticized for this exact thing, and Tom Skoka wrote about it on Deadspin a couple of years ago, that Andy Reid is a genius coach and has one of the best football minds of anyone and transformed this Chiefs team that was 2-14 and 14 before he took over. His football mind just operates at a slower cadence <laughs> than, than other than other great football minds. They and say that, you know, great thinkers, the game, the game slows down for them. Yeah, I mean, sorry to harp on this. I, <laughs> I find when I watch uh, with other fans, they sometimes aren't good with doing the subtraction math, right? They're not good with uh, one timeout. If you have one timeout left within the two-minute warning, you'll get the ball you got to learn to subtract by 40s. That's right, mm-hmm. 40s and then an extra 10 to spot the ball. So let's you know, say— In Andy yeah. Reid's favor, he makes a, an awesome slow-cooked beef stew. I don't know if you've had it at the Reed household. It's delicious. I mean, rule of thumb, if you have two timeouts inside the two-minute warning, you'll get the ball back with 45 seconds. If you have one timeout, you'll maybe get 
force them to kick with like 14 seconds. If you could use, if you have all your timeouts, this was another thing. Credit to Andy Reid and the Chiefs offense for not burning timeouts. If they only had one or two timeouts, it wouldn't seem so exceptional. By the way, Pete Carroll screwed up not as grandly because you'd have to extrapolate far into the future, but not going for two and also punting in the second half. Those weren't Andy Reid-esque screw-ups, but he didn't give his team a chance for win because he played poor strategy there. A chance for win. <laughs> and my job is talking. <laughs> so the Panthers were up 31 to nothing at half of that game. And in a weekend, as I said, where the results weren't super surprising, that would be the one that you could point to and say, wah? So what did you make of, of that game? Was it val- Mike, was it validation of the Panthers who have been doubted by many um, throughout the year? Or was it just a super fluky scenario and then the final score was kind of more reflective of of the balance between these teams well yeah they showed their strengths in the first half but they won the game by single digits and in fact you know had seattle like i said if seattle had after their first touchdown which made it 31 7 if they had consistently gone for two and made the two points when they were driving at the end of the game it could have been to tie they could have been down eight now you say mike that's a big ask making Uh, you know, surmising that they're going to make all their two-point conversions. Yes, but with three chances at two-point conversions, even if you make one or two of them, you're not much worse off. You you change having to make three touchdowns. So I'm saying the strategy should kick in when the score was 31-7. At that point on, he should have gone for two points every time. Even if you don't make two of them, fine. That winds up, the score winds up being... 26-31, 26-31, so it will take another score, not a field goal, but it will take another score to tie it. So anyway, we're, we're, it, we're yeah. talking a lot about two-point strategy. I mean, I think the interesting thing here was that the Seahawks were down 31 to nothing in the first place. Yeah. Stefan, what did, but what then did they you... came, But then they came back and, you know, t- stuck it to the Panthers, who I think were playing much worse in the second half than the first half. It was a tale of two halves. Can I stipulate that I was playing Scrabble all weekend and oh, saw Jesus. about four no, downs of, of, of football? Um, I did see a little bit of the first half of, uh, of, of that game during lunch. Um, so <laughs> my, my observations are based on watching 10 minutes of the first half. All right, you've, you've made that abundantly games. clear. Yeah. Let's get back to the Cam Newton story because I feel like Tommy Craggs wrote a nice piece for you this week. Josh, welcome back, Tommy. Good to see his byline. You know, positing how Newton has pushed back against the historical image of the black quarterback and how he has subverted a lot of our of our interpretations of him and of where he fits into the NFL. And I think this game showed that first half. They were having so much fun. I mean, maybe they were having a little bit too much fun because they sucked in the second half. But the, in terms of seeing a, a professional athlete have a great time and see these players enjoying themselves on the field, it was like, this is great sports. This was like watching those guys give out footballs to little kids in the stands was was you know, a reminder that we care about sport. Like sports are supposed to be fun. Like enough of the doer bullshit. This was like the Panthers are having a good time. I'm laughing because, like, it would have been remarkable. If they had lost that game. No. It would have been remarkable for a team to be up 31 to nothing and not be having a good time. That would that would have been impressive to see. That would have been an impressive well, commitment to Dura bullshit. I don't know. They were having uh, they were having a good time from 14 nothing. Well, the comparison between Newton and Russell Wilson is an interesting one because I think that in the group that does criticize Newton for dancing and, and other things that 
white people get mad when black people do, but not when white Mm -hmm. people do. It it seems like all the criticism of him is around the the stuff that he does that's external to like throwing a football or running with a football because Russell Wilson is not criticized in the same way. He, like Cam Newton, uh, runs around a lot. Their styles on the field aren't like super dissimilar. But in terms of, you know, how he interviews, Russell Wilson is like a robot of kind of niceness and like, uh, you know, appealing to your grandma. He's a sanctimonious, arrogant, robotic person. Um, Only because they ask him. If they didn't ask about Jesus, he wouldn't answer about Jesus. I think the layman who knows Cam Newton maybe seeing him for the first time this year, really seeing him, and also seeing him on yogurt commercials, likes Cam Newton. I think his Q score is rising, and I think Mm -hmm. it will with the Super Bowl. And I really do think even though this league is, you know, you, you, you could have a matchup between Pittsburgh and Indianapolis, and it'd be considered, rightly so, you know, great marquee teams. And we're talking about a team that, a city that doesn't even rate a major league baseball team and one that's perennially in the small market teams. But still, the Carolina-ness of uh, Cam, I think, does decrease his uh, natural and national appeal. Well, he does have a kind of uh, brashness to him and his play and his signaling for the first down in a very theatrical yes. Manner and mm-hmm. before this year had not won in the playoffs, had not really had consistent success. And so I think that rubs the uh, traditional minded fan the wrong way. Whereas with Wilson, he comported himself in like the most cliched, humble way possible and also had the victories to show for it. And so I think with dumb people, there's a causation there. Like mm-hmm. he, he wins because he's humble. And with Newton, there is kind of like a prove-it thing. Like, we'll allow you to be brash so long as you win. It's the same thing with Colin Kaepernick and kind of the same thing with Chip Kelly, too. It's as soon as you start losing, the backlash will be that much greater. Because well, that's why you're losing. But to be fair, it's not just dumb people. When you see the face of your opponent, you know, the quarterback's always going to be the symbol, and he's exulting like uh, people in football normally don't, it's going to bother the opposition. That's just how it is. And Aaron Rodgers doesn't do that, and Russell Wilson doesn't do that. They might scowl and get upset, but they don't, you know, pull their pull their shoulder pads down. I don't know. And Aaron Rodgers does a does a does a professional wrestling championship belt thing that he's marketed into a string of commercials. That's pretty brash. Kind of agree with Stefan there. <laughs> yeah, Rodgers. So we'll talk more Brady and Manning next week, no doubt, unless we want to. Focus all of our attentions on Carson Palmer. The Cardinals fans will definitely be uh, this week's winner of fans of team who think that we do not respect them. Stiffing him, yes. So the the New York Daily News, Pasco, which is they, they've got like a new cover artist or something. They're yeah, they're uh, they're going for getting it. lots of attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So their headline. Maybe they just unleash. Maybe they just have a new editor who they unleash the old cover artist. He was he had it in him the whole time. <laughs> Do you think it's the same cover artist slash headline writer who does the political ones, the Trump ones, that also is doing the football ones? Yeah, it's just uh, untethered. It very well yeah. could be. Yeah. yeah, we could do some more reporting on this issue. Yeah, maybe we should yeah. have them all. speculate. So, the cover for Manning versus Brady was Clash of the Taintons. Taintons, mm-hmm. which I thought was weird but also amusing. So I'm I'm curious, you know, Jim Nance has said that he's not going to talk about Peyton Manning and HGH because it's not a story. 
I'm just wondering, um, there are so many layers to this. Um, it's the fifth time that they'll have played in the playoffs. I think the 17th time overall. Um, I'm, I'm just curious how much of the kind of run-up to this game and how much of it during the game will be about Deflategate and HGH versus what we used to talk about when we talked about Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and just like who's the better who's quarterback. The better? Yeah, I don't. I don't remember us talking about their taints though. That seems odd to me to have that be the focus of the matchup. Anyway, um, no, I don't think it'll be about uh, Taint Gate. I think it'll be about. <laughs> It'll be about all the other stuff. It'll be about the five times and the 17 times and Brady's 10th AFC championship game and Manning's neck and Manning's legacy and will he retire and should he go to the Super Bowl? No, I think these two stories don't rise to some some subjective level of mass fascination. And maybe that's because the network. Wait, what? I think these two stories don't. I don't think that the Manning story has... No, I mean, at this stage, I mean, obviously, Deflategate, I think Deflategate is done. I don't think that that's going to have much traction other than as a throwaway joke line now. And I don't think that the Manning story picked up enough traction after it was aired, um, after those first week, after the first week or two that it was a, a, a public issue. I think that people want to... Seriously, I think that people want to... F- Focus on Brady and Manning because who is Brady and Manning? Yeah, I think I think again. the I think the HGH story went away when the network uh, that aired the story went out of business. I think that helped it. All right, before we get into relitigating Al Jazeera, let's uh, hear from our sponsor this week, Squarespace, which makes building a website, portfolio, or online store incredibly easy. Uh, Mike, I like to use these spots just to kind of tell you about different places that you can go to eat yeah. in New York. Yeah. Sort of a... And then I'll tell you something I learned about them via their website. So tell me. <laughs> so I think last last week uh, or last time we did the egg sandwich place. Egg, yeah. Um, so another uh, New York eatery that has a website on Squarespace is Van Leeuwen Artisan Ice Cream. Ooh. That sounded delicious mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll des- sound delicious to you. It has a kind of Dutch-sounding name. Spell so Lewin. You know it's really it's interesting. Good. Lewin. L-E-E-U-W-E-N. Yes. It's good all, all those letters available to you on Squarespace. Mm-hmm. The ice cream place opened in the spring of 2008. They have classic and vegan ice creams for all you vegans out there. And they make them all from scratch in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. There are mm-hmm. very lovely photos here on this website. Not many of the people eating the ice cream would surprise you of eating artisanal Brooklyn ice cream. <laughs> These are exact. They just. I'm just saying they just don't look like Trump voters is what I'm saying. It's not a huge overlap with a NASCAR monster truck rally and the people eating Van Leeuwen artisanal ice cream. That's all I'm saying. And I'm saying. the website looks artisanal as well. It's built using Squarespace. looks professionally designed. No coding required. You can make the site... Very easily. It's intuitive. It's easy to use. You get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Um, so you can start your free trial site today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code HANGUP to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Ice cream is delicious. Okay. This is Josh, as you probably know. I'm on the phone. And that is because uh, I need to give a little intro before we get into this next segment. Um, We're going to talk about this guy, John Scott, who uh, was elected to the NHL All-Star Game 
by the fans. There was a question about whether he was actually going to play in the game, and we discussed that at length with our guest, Greg Wyshynski, as you'll see in about 15 seconds. What happened was, after we finished recording the segment, the NHL announced that John Scott was indeed going to play in the All-Star game, that he is going to captain the Pacific Division All-Stars. So we're criticizing Gary Bedman and talking about how terrible the NHL is. Keep in mind that... Uh, they changed their minds, and maybe we're wrong. So without further ado, here's our segment with Greg Wyshynski. All right, for our next segment, I'm just going to get into introducing the guest because the guest is a special guest, and he needs to be introduced right at the top. Joining us now from his ice palace off Exit 5 of the New Jersey Turnpike, it's the man who has maybe one more Y in his last name than you would expect, Greg Wyshynski. He's editor of the Yahoo Hockey Blog Puck Daddy, author of Take Your Eye Off the Puck, how to Watch Hockey by Knowing Where to Look, and co-host of the daily podcast, Merrick versus Wyshynski. Hello, Greg. What, what exit did you assign me? It was just a random number between, no. between one and nine. Five is far and too I, south. I, I am, Five is far am, too am, south. Am, He's more of a 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm an exit 11, and you just 11, there you go. Uh, yeah. in, in a Philly suburb, so uh, yeah. take it back. Yes. Yeah. Greg is famous now, so... He demands the accurate exit. So I'm going to give a little bit of, of my take of, of what's gone on here. And you just correct me if I get anything wrong. So the NHL All-Star Game is a thing that very few people care about. Maybe no one. And they changed the format. They seem to change the format every year. This year, it's the most kind of ridiculous novelty like not a real hockey game sort of format. It's and just convoluted gonna, to boot. It's like a three-on-three tournament. It basically it it feels like somebody was officially out of ideas and they found this one at the bottom of the of the trash bin. So they asked the interns with no no disrespect to interns. They pulled the interns. What's the dumbest, most millennial thing we could try to come up with? So on his podcast uh, with uh, with Merrick Wyshynski kind of treats this idea, this format with the seriousness that it deserves. Now, let's uh, listen to that clip. So you want to see a vote for Rory for a really skilled guy who may not necessarily get in, but yeah. if you give him the chance to be in a three-on-three with all these skilled players, he'd be super awesome. And maybe let him in the skills competition while you're at it. Hmm. That's not a bad thought. I'm trying to think who would fit the bill there. Because I thought you were going to go the other way of like saying that the Pacific Division fans should vote in John Scott just to see him. Oh, my God, John Scott All-Star. Oh, yes, just so whenever anyone ever has him on a radio show, they can say former All-Star, NHL All-Star John Scott. <laughs> but also in the three-on-three, you know. Yes, yes. Oh, my God, that's the one. He's the one. He's the guy. <laughs> here, 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 here comes McDavid and Eberle down the ice, and John Scott is... Nowhere to be found. <laughs> well, this is some good coaching. John Scott's a trailer. No, John Scott can't keep up. That's right. John John Scott is cherry picking. Oh wait, no, no, he just lost his breath at his own blue line. <laughs> oh, that was a good fade. <laughs> so this conversation is hilarious to like several Canadians. But Greg, you're gonna have to explain to us why it's funny that John Scott would be an all-star and then kind of tell us the story of, of how this took off. Or to quote Ayn Rand, who is John Scott? First off, that was a great clip. It was the spark of creative genius. That was like being in Edison's workshop, really, I think. There was like uh, a Canadian hockey-gasm. 
Uh, there. Ed- Ed- Edison exits well, seven John, off of the New Jersey John, Turnpike, by the way. But go ahead. <laughs> John Scott's the, the last of, of, of the enforcers, pretty much. I mean, you know, the, the way that fighting has gone in the league, uh, and uh, there's really no need for having a guy who plays six or seven minutes a night on your fourth line anymore to, quote-unquote, police the ice. Uh, but he's keeps getting jobs, and he keeps getting jobs from really smart hockey people uh, to have him around. And so, you know, he, he's also kind of a goofball. Uh, the, the reason why John Scott became the focus of this campaign, and I think he really, for whatever reason, captured the imagination of, of voting fans, is this is a guy who once wore a T-shirt depicting himself scoring his only goal of the season. I mean, he's kind of the guy who might get it if he got voted into the All-Star game. So how did it happen? I don't know. I mean, we, we put it out there. Uh, another podcast hosted by Steve Dangle put it out there and then read it. Their hockey board is really who took the puck and, and ran with it to, uh, to flood the ballot box. And, you know, what, there's been sort of joke campaigns before in the All-Star game, but once you saw Scott ascend to the top of the voting ranks, because, as you said, no one actually cares to vote for the All-Star game anymore because we've gone from voting in 12 players to voting in four, and nobody really cares about it anymore. Once I think the possibility was presented this guy could win, then it really went beyond sort of this Reddit podcast community, and a lot of hockey fans jumped in on it to see if they could make it happen, which it did. You got more votes than Yager, Patrick Kane, Ovechkin, and Sidney Crosby. So... Explain to everybody what happened after that. Um, he got traded, right? And now his spot in the All-Star game is in peril. It's in peril. Yes. So, so the way it worked is this. So the fan campaign succeeds. The NHL, by the way, throughout this, this entire process, had run away in the opposite direction from acknowledging this was happening. I have covered many, many years in which there was an All-Star game. This was the first in which the National Hockey League, at no point during the voting, released the vote totals to say where it was. They didn't have the vote totals on their site. No one even knew what was going on because they didn't want to acknowledge that this, this campaign was happening. So he wins the fan vote. And, you know, there's a part of, of us who felt like he would decline it. And at first he said he was sort of embarrassed by being put in this way. But then he embraced it and said he wanted to go and play in the All-Star game, bring his family to Nashville, do the whole thing. He was asked to step down by the NHL. He was asked to step down by his team, the Arizona Coyotes. He was offered a, a trip for his family to Nashville. All this stuff, he declined. He wanted to go play in the All-Star game. Part of this also, by the way, was this notion floating around, Scott, from some people that know him, that he wanted to stick it to the NHL for having been suspended multiple times and losing about $80,000 in salary over the last couple of years. So then he gets traded by the Arizona Coyotes to the Montreal Canadiens, they specifically asked that he be involved in the trade. Now, their cover is they needed to get rid of a contract to then bring in the player they traded, uh, along with someone they picked up on waivers. But Scott goes to Montreal, gets demoted to the American Hockey League, and the thought right now is that would make him ineligible for the All-Star game, even if, as of Sunday, Scott hasn't been told either way if he's playing or not. All right, this seems like a, a, a lot of length that the NHL has gone to to avoid, which is what is not even a minor embarrassment, frankly. Um, because, as you mentioned, there have been other, quote-unquote, joke candidacies 
um, players supported by fans in the past. I mean, just last year, Zemgus Girgensons <laughs> um, was basically voted into the All-Star game because Latvia. Was, you know, Latvia has a joke to you? Lot- Latvia's not <laughs> a joke. We're fans in Latvia supported this guy. I'm a big fan of Latvia. Love the Latvians. Great people. Um, but why were those previous candidacies not as much of a threat to the integrity of hockey as John Scott's candidacy has been? Why is the NHL gone all Soviet here? Well, I think part of it is that they did debut this 50 new format, like you said uh, before. You know, they change formats every every other season. I mean, re- keep in mind the the integrity and the honor of the All Star Game. The last format was a fantasy draft. <laughs> for the players, so I mean, you know, uh, why why this time? I think they they really felt like the fans had abused the system. I mean, the the Gergensen's thing last year was what it was. I think they thought it was cute because it was Latvia doing it. In previous years, we've had players like Mike Kamaserik of the Montreal Canadiens, who had no business being anywhere near the All Star Game, voted in because the game was in Montreal. I mean, it, it does. It's happened time and time again. But when it happens in a way in which the NHL doesn't want it to happen, then things get really bitter. For example, you know, we cited this in the clip, the Rory Fitzpatrick situation a few years ago, where uh, a, a third-pairing journeyman defenseman all of a sudden, for whatever reason, captured the imagination of fans and the ballot box was stuffed. The NHL and Slate did an investigation into this, threw out millions of votes uh, based on the fact they were claiming it was a computer program that voted them in. Uh, and he didn't get voted into the All-Star game because of it. So when things really don't go their way and they feel embarrassed because they uh, uh, created a system that allows for this sort of thing to occur, then uh, then they, they take steps to rectify it. So I want I have an opinion I'd like to express, then a couple questions. My opinion is this is great, except John Scott has just a terrible name for the comedic purposes. And I know there's the Latvian connection. By the way, Latvia is funny. But Gergensen, that's very funny. And those other guys who got in, there were comedic elements. I, I, just, I just wish that John Scott were named anything else. Maybe John Latvian. That's one. Two, do you think in your sport, in the NHL, do things like Reddit and podcasts hold outside sway more than they do in other sports? Because I can't see the equivalent of even a fine, fine and an NFL uh, podcast having this kind of influence. NHL fans are by far the most tech savvy, uh, and they are by far the, the loudest uh, voice sometimes on social media. I mean, you know... But, when you compare the fan bases, say, in the United States, there's no reason why hockey players' names should be trending on a weeknight on Twitter, except there are so many fans that experience a two-screen experience while they watch the game. They're also tweeting about it. And they're looking for gifts and that sort of thing, uh, that there is sort of that, that online buzz for this kind of thing. The, uh, but the other part of it is, like I said, the All-Star game has become so minimalized in the eyes of fans insofar as their impact on the game and insofar as how many people actually care about it, that all it takes is, uh, you know, motivated couple thousand people uh, to vote for Scott every day, and all of a sudden he, he rises up the, the, the ranks of the voting. Now, uh, let me say this about the All-Star game. I, it, the, the, what's happened in this whole thing has really made me take a step back and, and try to figure out what people think of the NHL All-Star game. And I feel like there are people that assign integrity and honor to it that still think Gretzky and Mario Lemieux are playing in a uh, 
Wales Conference versus Campbell Conference format. You know, baseball fans rightfully look at the All-Star Game as an honor. Uh, it is a, you know, a hundred-year-old tradition or whatever it's been for players getting into the game, and it really does feel like you're walking in the, step, the footsteps of giants uh, when you get elected. In the NHL All-Star Game, you have a collection of professionals that would rather be on a beach and actively seek to not go to the All-Star Game uh, on a yearly basis, like Sidney Crosby, who's only appeared in one. Uh, so the idea that the NHL All-Star Game should be treated with the same gravitas as something like Major League Baseball is unfounded, and I think it's been hilarious to see people bend over backwards to try to assign some importance to what is basically a, a joke format that a joke candidate is now hopefully going to take part in. So how fair would it be to say that this is an, an indictment of Gary Bettman or kind of a commentary on his tenure? Because you can't imagine Adam Silver, who is just incredibly savvy about how to work the press and how things will be perceived. You can't imagine him doing this. Now, does this decision reach up to Batman? Because it just seems so... It, it's even worse because they've actively turned something that was good and cool and that would have given them PR and made it into a negative. It's not like they like turned a neutral thing into a negative or like didn't turn a negative into a positive. There's like no worse thing you can do as a league than like take a good story and make it bad. And every step of the way, they made it worse by approaching John Scott, it sounds like privately and suggesting that he he and his family come to the All-Star weekend, but not play in the game and show up for interviews. This is not exactly great media strategy. First off, I'll say that every everything the National Hockey League does goes up to Gary Bettman. I mean, he, there, there is a Lauren Michael level, level of micromanagement that occurs in this league, uh, and, and Bettman knows and sees all. So, you know, there's no question that he had some input on this. Uh, and you're right. I mean, you know, it's funny. The, the, the fan vote and the campaign to get Scott into the All-Star game, there's been words like, we've embarrassed him. There's been words like, you know, we've bullied him for taking a player of limited talent and, and saying he's an All-Star. All that goes out the window, I think, the minute he embraces it, and he has. And he actually thanked the fans for voting him in on Sunday and said, you know, otherwise I'm never, ever experiencing an all-star game in my career, so I think it's kind of cool to have this opportunity. Um, so that's, I think, where the fan influence ends. We voted him into the all-star game, he's an all-star. Everything that's happened to that after that is the NHL's fault. They could have embraced it. They could have used this thing for a moment of levity. It could have been an entry point for fans that otherwise are repelled by the All-Star game on an annual basis and don't ever tune in to watch it, it, it could be a chance for them to tune in and see something different. But instead, they, they felt like someone was trying to ruin the thing that they've created in the three-on-three. Uh, they don't handle situations that they don't create very well. And in this case, it, it, you actually have people now you know, signing petitions saying they're not going to watch the All-Star game and trending free John Scott on Twitter uh, so it, it blew up in their faces. They could have easily just accepted this thing and rolled with it, done a feature story on the guy when he won the, when he won the fan vote. But instead, they've, they've acted like they just, they've not wanted it to happen. And now I think they've ended up repulsing fans uh, who support it. 
See what I mean about the funny name? Free Zemgus Gergensons. That's funny. <laughs> Bullying John Scott, a guy who's 6'8", 270, whose job it is to punch people. But I want to get to that. So you made the jokes about him sucking wind and not even being able to play. To get to the NHL, sure, he's there to fight. But to get to the NHL, you do have to be pretty skilled. And also, the guys, though, they are the best and most skilled. Maybe they don't give 100% the other guys in the All-Star game. How much, how hard will it be for him to keep up? How much will it look like we're talking about a guy two or three leagues out of his depth? No, it would, it would never be that bad. For, first of all, anyone who's seen the NHL All-Star Game knows essentially what happens during that weekend, which is that there's the skills competition the day before that Scott would have taken part in. He said he wanted to do the hardest shot competition. I imagine he also would have taken a shootout in that uh, goofy uh, event where they all wear funny hats and Superman capes and stuff like that. Like, he would have been great there, and, and we all would have loved it because it would have been a player where the bar was set so low for him to do anything skills-wise. If he accomplished anything on that Saturday, then he would have been, you know, a folk hero for it. Then, on, then they all go drinking. Every, every single player in the game uh, goes drinking. They all party. They show up on Sunday for this All-Star game, and it is played uh, at uh, one-third of the speed of, of real NHL hockey. Uh, so the idea that, that, that it, he would have been out of place or, or an embarrassment in this game, uh, even with it being three-on-three, three, I think is unfounded. It's a very methodical pace. And I'm sure at the end of the day, you'd have players on that Pacific Division team looking to set up John Scott because, by and large, the players who have commented on this all say he should go, and they've been very good-natured about it. So I don't think in any way, in any way shape, or form we were going to see uh, you know, a, a guy embarrass himself and embarrass the game and, and what is going to be a very uh, deliberately paced three-on-three uh, -three All-Star game. Well, Greg, we knew you were going to ruin hockey. We didn't know exactly how, but, um, <laughs> you know, this was, a good way, this was a good way to do it. I just hope this guy files a grievance against the NHL. He's getting, he's getting screwed <laughs> out of money. Seriously, he's getting screwed out of money for playing in the All-Star game because they do get bonuses. And if he was traded, if he was ordered by Gary Bettman to be exiled to, you know, Metalorgursk or wherever he's playing now, uh, Newfoundland, he's getting screwed out of his NHL contract. Well, I mean, what you're essentially saying is I might have to testify. I don't, I'm not looking forward <laughs> to that. <so. laughs> All right, well... Listen to uh, Merrick versus Wyshynski for, uh, for breaking news on this and other uh, hockey stories. Unless Greg. the NHL jams the signal, which could be happening, Greg. <laughs> I don't want to make you feel a little paranoid. Thanks for being here. Yeah. It's good to talk to you so long as you're still here. <laughs> I'm, I'm really looking forward to going to Nashville for the All-Star Game and having some closed-door meetings with men in suits. <laughs> All right, sir. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks, boys. Really appreciate it. Greg Wyshynski is the editor of Puck Daddy, the author of Take Your Eye Off the Puck, How to Watch Hockey by Knowing Where to Look, and the co-host of the daily podcast, Merrick versus Wyshynski. Now word from another sponsor, and that is Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. The mattress industry has inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. A lot of adverbs going on in the mattress industry these days, Stefan. Casper is revolutionizing that industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing the savings directly to the consumer. A Casper mattress provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. Casper's mattress is one of a kind, a new hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. Mattresses can often cost well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin 
You got your seven fifty for a full size, eight fifty for queen size, and nine fifty for a king size mattress. Maybe we should do a collection for John Scott. He's going to need the king size. You think he's going to need the king size? Extra long king size. The NHL, sir, has screwed you out of your all star bid. But here is a very comfortable mattress. Who could complain about that? Um, and buying a Casper mattress is completely risk free. They have free delivery returns within a hundred day period. It's an obsessively engineered mattress. At a shockingly fair price, you get that risk-free trial. You get that good return policy. You can try sleeping on it for 100 days, free delivery, painless returns. So here is the special offer that we have for you. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash hangup and using our promo code, which is also hangup. Terms and conditions apply. In Cleveland on Monday night, Stephen Curry and the Golden State Warriors destroyed poor LeBron James and his Cavs, 132-98. to The Warriors, who were winning by 43 points before taking out their starters, are now 38-4, and which leaves them on pace to go 74-8 and on the season, breaking the Bulls' all-time record by two games. The website 538, though, which uses a concept called math, <laughs> predicts the Warriors will As finish at 70 As indicated in its tw- name. <laughs> numbers. Um, math is a hater. The math says that they're going to be, go 70 and 12. So no matter what their final record, Warriors are clearly the best team in the NBA. Oh, no, straw man. You're wrong. The San Antonio Spurs are just two games back of Golden State. They're 36 and 6. They're winning games by an average of 14.2 points compared to the Warriors' mere 11.7. That margin is nearly two points better than the all-time record set by the 71-72 LA Lakers. And it's even more impressive when you consider that the Spurs are an elite special forces unit, let's listen to the introduction of Spurs Special Forces. In 1996, a crack international commando unit was sent to prison for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped and went undercover, hiding in plain sight as the most boring team in professional sports. They survive as soldiers of fortune and on their million-dollar salaries. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, maybe you can find the Spurs. Secret people undercover as rad sports players. Joining us now is the man behind Spurs Special Forces economist and comedy writer, Matt Hill. Hey, Matt. Hey, hey, how's it going? Good to be here. It's going very well. Your series is very hilarious. So uh, congratulations and thank you for um, its humor. And question that I have for you, we'll get to some of the like specific genius of it in a minute, is kind of the reputation of the Spurs as being a boring team. Tim Duncan in particular is boring in this series to great comedic effect. Um, but I feel like there's been kind of a revision in how we view the Spurs. You know, when they beat the Heat to win the NBA uh, title, they were praised for playing this kind of beautiful basketball. There's been this reappraisal of the Spurs. Yet, I guess for comedy purposes, thinking of the Spurs as the most boring team in all of the NBA and prep sports history is a better concept to wring humor from? Yeah, I mean, you can't really get into the nuance of the ball movement, I would say, (laughs) (laughs) for comedy purposes. You just kind of have to, yeah, go with the stereotype. Uh, I think when I actually thought of the idea, they were still playing uh, a boring band of, uh, brand of basketball. Um, but yeah, yeah, they're, they're fun to watch. I love watching them. I, I actually watch a lot of them now. 
So the principle is like um, Leslie Nielsen not realizing he's in a comedy. That's what made the naked gun good. I mean, maybe eventually he realized it, but he never acted like he realized it. So it's nice to have these blank characters that you could mold and do a lot with. Yeah. So like I think the Spurs actually work well for that, the the specific players and that you can take one characteristic and amplify that characteristic. So with, with Duncan, he's really boring. Uh, with uh, with Parker, he's a ladies' man. Ginobili's a little bit harder. I just sort of picture him as a wild card. He can like mm-hmm. do whatever because there's not that much. Like he doesn't have. I mean, he's just yeah. He's just the way he plays is very. Uh, I don't know, free flowing. I guess. Right, but the Swiss I Army mean, knife aspect of Ginobili that he has so many talents. That's something. Yeah, yeah. You could do whatever you want. Like okay, he can sing. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Of course, why uh, can't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then every, pop- every Spanish speaker can sing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yes. I, well, in the first episode, all I do is talk about Argentina for him and try to use whatever I know about Argentina. <laughs> so once you got to those three things. <laughs> once I got those three things, I said, comedy gold. That's it. We're off. <laughs> And this is why it so easily maps onto the A-team. I mean, we heard the introduction clearly it's from the A-team, but it's everyone who has their type. And then you didn't exactly try to match them one for one, although the ladies' man and face and then yeah. Murdoch. I don't know if they, you have a crazy character in there. Too bad Matt Bonner is no longer with the team. No, 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 Matt Bonner's still with the Spurs, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> we know. I heard I I heard I heard from He's as back... with the Spurs as he's ever been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I heard from back channels that he wants to be in an episode. Of course so... he does. Yes. <laughs> he was in an episode. He was. He was sitting in the locker room. Yeah, yeah. No, he was on said. the li- he was on the list of distress codes like Bonner needs sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 he's there. Uh, yeah, I don't know. They map. I, they map sort of to the A team. I mean, I think Pop and Tony map the best. Like Pop is pretty much Hannibal I, mm-hmm. in in the series. I guess. Um, I guess Pop is a little more grumpy than Hannibal was. But I mean, most. I think most of the people who watch it don't even realize it's an A team thing. Because <laughs> I mean, I'm you know like I'm old enough to remember the A team, but I think a lot of like you know younger NBA fans have no idea it's an A team yeah. parody. Wouldn't it be worse though if their reaction was, "Wait, that movie with Liam Neeson and Bradley Cooper"? So I'm glad <laughs> no, that died. No. Yeah, that would, be, yeah. that would be way worse. So let's listen to uh, the clip of Tim Duncan being uh, boring. Howdy. You're Tim Duncan. Yep, it's me. You know, some people think I'm boring, but I'm actually pretty cool. And to prove it, here are some facts about me. I collect swords. <laughs> pretty cool, right? Also, I have a wizard tattoo. Even more cool. And my website is slamdunkin.com. That's a pun. And only cool people use puns. Slamdunkin.com. Because I like to slam dunk. I also like fundamentals. I slam dunk when it's necessary. Tim Duncan's website actually is slamdunkin.com. And he, and he has course. a wizard tattoo there. It's all true. It's all true. I, and, Googled, and, and, I Googled facts about Tim, Tim Duncan. <laughs> you Google facts about everybody, and that's what's partly what's so wonderful about, about the cartoon. Um, when Popovich is instructing Manu Ginobili about how to act like a child when they're staging a kidnapping – Long story, right? Uh, he says, become a lost child in your mind. Your parents didn't show you affection and you're searching for someone, to, something to love you. Could be a puppy, could be a stranger, a roommate at the Air Force Academy. He went to the Air Force Academy. Um, so the, they, these guys also have in their backgrounds the kind of details that are just lovely to include in this kind of satire. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all, yeah, they, I mean, they're super interesting people. That's another reason why I think um, they the, the Spurs uh, specifically work because... 
uh, they do seem like you know they're they have these kind of backgrounds. I mean, I mean, uh, Manu's from Argentina. He seems like a worldly guy. Duncan seems actually he is boring, but he has these lots of like weird interests. I don't think you could do a series like this about someone like James Harden, who I don't know. To me, maybe I, I mean, obviously I don't know the guy, but Harden seems very boring. Like there's nothing there's nothing but you know beneath the surface there. But I would also think it would be hard to take someone who forces your hand, who has you know so much shtick about him. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Someone who's very like thinks very conscious of their image mm-hmm. and very it cultivates it. Yeah. The Spurs just seem like, well, we're the Spurs. We're good at basketball. This is what we do with our life. But there's also something about basketball too. There's enough characters. There's enough sort of weird storylines and weird people that there are details there that are definitely worth mining. Uh, you have to pause to read the distress code book that Josh referenced, which is in the Lamarcus Aldridge kidnapping episode. But some of them are, you know, play off of what makes the NBA so weird. You know, f- uh, code four fifty one drunk James Dolan sells Knicks to Jimmy Buffett <laughs> cover band. Four fifty three came and killed Bigfoot. Four fifty four Joey Cross ruined Easter. 464, Chris Broussard continues to have a job. So there, there's there's enough sort of weirdness in the NBA that there's material there for you. Did that sort of, does that influence, you know, how you can go about doing these? Oh yeah, the NBA is the best because I, I think compared to all the other sports, you really get, or it feels like you get to know the players. Uh, I don't know if it's because in basketball you can see them and there's you know a lot of, a lot of body language there, um, or it's just the, no the type of... Pr- the, yeah, the type of personality that goes in, into the NBA. I don't know, but they all seem like I don't know. There's all sorts of comedy that 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 arises from the NBA. Like, um, I mean, like the Kristaps rap video that just dropped. A new one just dropped. Um, there seems like there's something like that every day. It's I I think that it's a combination of things. One is that uh, creativity or personal um, your personal mark on the game is allowed to flourish and is embraced. And you know, going back to Daryl Dawkins naming his dunks, but now everyone dunks in their own way or has their own form. And, you know, there's not the conformity that other sports uh, mandate. And also the contracts are such that unlike football, you're you're not always on tenterhooks and feeling like you're going to get cut. And the fact that it is a largely African-American league just means that, you know, it's less uh, conformative, I think. So you add it all together and then you have just very funny guys. And then there's just a snowball effect of once one guy is funny and it's shown that he's funny, he, the next guy will want to be funny too to get that attention. And so right now we have this flourishing of uh, comedy and basketball. All right, let's listen to another clip. In episode three, uh, Phil Jackson, the president of the Knicks, has attempted to kidnap Greg Popovich. A lot of kidnappings and Spurs special forces. Um, and then Derek Fisher, the coach, comes in. So here's a conversation between Fisher and Phil Jackson. All right, Phil, give it up. Derek, you're supposed to guard the door. Sorry, Phil, they beat us up. <laughs> Did you use the triangle like I said? Yeah, sorta. Sorta? Triangle's complicated. Wait, what's that? Oh, this? I'm trying to get a real coach. Maybe if you gave me some real players, some some non-Bargnanis. I gave you the best system in basketball. No, 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 no. You know what the best system is? It's called Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. You have Carmelo! Oh, Carmelo? He's fat and overrated. Okay, on that we agree. But still, Langston Galloway, Anthony Early, are these even real people? You should have been Kerr. Instead, I got an East Coast Byron Scott. So Andrew Kay wrote a a story about um, the series and about you, Matt, in the New York Times. 
And uh, he wrote that the show has become a darling within the thin demographic subcategory where web-savvy basketball fans and quirky comedy aficionados intersect. And I wanted to highlight that clip in particular because there are so many minute references that only diehard NBA fans will get. And so I'm just wondering how big do you think this slice is? Um, We obviously all enjoyed it. There are a lot of people who are watching these on YouTube, but of people who like – like weird cartoons and also know who Cleanthony Early is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I thought it was much smaller than it turned out to be because I thought when I made the first one that you know maybe five hundred people, a thousand people would see it. But so it's it's bigger than I thought, which has you know been a nice surprise for me. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I with that particular scene i actually wrote that scene thinking no one would really understand what was going on like because the way that scene plays out is the spurs are escaping while they're talking so i was like okay the real the scene is about them escaping but i'll throw in all this like obscure nba minutiae into the argument and you know maybe some people will get it and you know they'll like it but if not you can you can get by with them escaping but it seems like everyone gets it who watches it so uh yeah, I don't know. It's great. I, I can't believe how many people uh, know this stuff that, that are out there. Well, I think the media landscape we live in allows things like this to, to flourish. And I think the, the point you made about the sort of connection between, between absurdity and satire and sports are, are perfect. And the analogy that, that I think works here, the parallel um, product that works here was a, a comic strip called The Soxaholics about the Boston Red Sox that ran for that, – that was written basically for a decade and, and – uh, its author, whom I profiled a long time ago for the Wall Street Journal, he had a core big audience that wasn't just Red Sox fans. You know, it was fans that cared about um, th- this minutia and cared about the psychology of the sport and fandom and weird personalities. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I mean, there it's really hard to get feedback on, on the scripts, though, because there's the intersection between NBA nerd and comedy writer is not large. So, all my comedy writer friends don't know that much about the NBA, and they can't really, you know, t- you know, they can't really read the script because they just don't. But half the time, they're like, "I don't know what this is." I mean, some of the act, like most of the actors, also they're reading the lines. And they're like, I, 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 "Okay, I guess, I guess this is funny," but I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't follow the league, so I don't know what this is. And my wife, my wife just like will watch it, and her eyes will glaze over. So. It's tough, but uh, I'm glad that there are there are NBA NBA nerds out there. That's why you got to appeal to your economist friends. They'll get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Matt, uh, you have an idea for a fourth episode, um, but I read, I think in the Times article that it was going to take you a while because you like have other stuff to do in your life, which is disappointing but understandable. So, can I pressure you? Given um, that we're big fans of yours, what is going to happen in, in episode four? What can, can you just tease a little bit? We didn't even Maybe get to little... episode two, by the way, where Tim Duncan takes over a small a nation Latin island. Yeah. island. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, inclu- including a shok and farewell in there, in there was a great touch, the Ken they, Burns they, reference. They, yeah. Yeah. Uh, episode four will involve the river walk because <laughs> uh, I haven't. <laughs> Because I Googled San Antonio and the three things that came up were the Riverwalk, the Alamo, and San Antonio SeaWorld. So it will involve two of those three things. Uh, That will be my tease, yeah. What about uh, Tim Duncan's uh, bicycle being in the basement of the Alamo? 
Could that, could that be a possible <laughs> plot line? That, you know, that could be a plot line. And uh, this guy Boban on the Spurs, he's really taken uh, – he's really – you know, the yeah. fans love him. But, I, you know, I wrote it before Boban happened, so I don't think Boban's going to make an appearance. Episode 5, Boban. Episode 5. Joins, about, joins, about joins Spurs. Yeah. And please don't ever have Kawhi Leonard talk. <laughs> no, yeah, never, no, no, no. That, he can never talk. He, he will never talk. Yeah, for sure. All right, Matt Hill is an economist. He's at UCLA. He also is the writer, the animator, and the mind behind Spurs Special Forces. Matt, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, now it is time for After Balls. And we mentioned Boban briefly. I was prepared for any Boban conversation that might arise on this podcast. Boban Marjanovic is deep, deep, deep on the Spurs bench, such that he has not even appeared on an episode of Spurs Special Forces. He's seven foot three. He is Serbian, and he recently had the play of the NBA season in which off a rebound, he dunked. He did the like super huge, like Brontosaurus big man style <laughs> move of dunking without jumping. It's impossible because he really can't jump. So he grabs the ball, dunks, and just totally envelops Jeremy Evans of the Mavs within his bulk and just hugs him. You need to look up this video on the internet if you haven't seen it. It's fantastic. Um, Boban, this is his first year with the Spurs. He's become a folk hero, and here's his path to the Spurs. He played for Hemo Farm, then Swiss Lion Tokovo, then Cheska Moscow, then Zalgaris Kaunas, then Nizhny Novgorod, then Radnitsky Kragujevac, <laughs> then Mega Vizura, then Krivina Zvezda, then San Antonio Spurs. Boban. It's a normal career path for every young Serb. Uh, Mike, what is your Boban? So we talked about strategy in the NFL. And if I did not make this point about things that probably wouldn't have helped, I think it was stupid for Seattle to have ever punted, especially on a drive when they first pull a fake punt deep in their own territory. And then in Carolina territory, they punt it. I mean, they scored on every other time they touched the ball. And they really didn't force many three and outs, but... It's not like uh, Carolina chewed up tremendous amount of clock, so they didn't give themselves a chance to win. So we all talk, we all analyze. There's the game you play to try to score as many points, and then there are things like time management, and then there are things like, you know, whether to go for two or whether to punt given the game situation. There's another game that's a lot like this, where the game you play is one thing, but the meta strategy is also important, and that game is Jeopardy. And then Monday on Jeopardy, there was a two-way tie from actually the two returning champions, so a little bit of uh, interesting thing there. And the last place woman was far behind, didn't even have half their total. I think Randy had $6,000. So the first two players had $13,000 some dollars. Randy had $6,000. Now you got to be strategic about this. I understand if you're either of the first place players, there's really only one thing to guarantee. And what Jeopardy players always do, I've almost never seen anyone think that they're going to miss Final Jeopardy. You can't think about that. So you say to yourself, okay, Let's game this out. What happens if I get it right? And both players in first place, I think, correctly said, I have to bet all my money. And they did. The question was state capitals. And it was, 
1957 event led to the creation of a national historic site in this city, signed into law by a president whose library is there now, too. So a, so a couple shots beyond the one that when they tell you the category of state capitals, you kind of run through them in your mind before the commercial break if you're a contestant. You probably should try to think of all the state capitals. I mean, you just got a 2% chance if you don't even hear the question. All right. So 1957. Something happened there, and there's a president whose library is in a state capital. So you start thinking about that, too. Fine. They all got it wrong. Either of you guys know the answer? Topeka? Nope. 1957. It is bump, 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 bump. It's Little Rock. So it's understandable yeah. that one could not get yeah. the final answer. Although, as I was playing with my children, I blurted out the correct answer, which led them to celebrate me as smarter than the people on Jeopardy, and then told them about the time I came in last in Jeopardy, because I don't want to be too much of a hero in my children's eyes. All right, so the first two players both got it wrong, thus taking them down to zero. And then Crazy Insane Randy, in third place with $6,000, bet all 6000 and lost a three-way tie with $0. Oh, Crazy Insane Randy. I guess we don't condemn her, but we should condemn her. Betting strategy matters. So this was pretty bad, although two people didn't commit bad strategy. But if you want really, really bad, I take you to the two th- same thing happened in two 2013 in the semifinals of Teen Jeopardy. Now, unlike Crazy Randy, I guess we could say that they are teenagers, but going into Final Jeopardy, here were the dollar values. Joe Vertnick, a senior from Mound, Minnesota, had $12,000. Kelton Ellis, a junior from Macon, Georgia, had $16,400, and Tori Amos, yes, Tori Amos, a sophomore from Englewood, Ohio, had $1,600. Now, Joe, guard against Tori. Most you could get is 32. You don't want to take your wager down from 32. So any wager that takes you more than than Kelton, any wager above 4,400, but below what's uh, 12,000 minus 32, 8,800. So anything in between there, you're fine, Joe. But stupid Joe waged all, wagered all of it. Kelton, you want to guard yourself. You want to give yourself some money. Now, Tori can double her money at 32. So maybe you just want to bet more than, if you get it wrong, leaving yourself with 32. Maybe you just want to bet 13,200. You still leave yourself with 32. Stupid Kelton bet it all. And Tori Amos, we loved her on the Lilith tour, but she bets it all too. And they all wind up with zero. These triple zeros are you know what? They're as shameful as getting $200 questions wrong. When you take the Jeopardy quiz, they don't ask you or tell you anything about wagering, but it is incumbent upon you not to be the Andy Reid of teenagers on Jeopardy and just get a little bit of strategy and a little bit of sense about how to wager. I know the pressure's on, but just to be a little sensible, Tori Amos. It's not the first time someone said that. So um, Andy Reid says the answer is Little Rock. You're correct. Oh, oh, wait, the game was over five minutes ago. Oh, well, Andy, maybe next year. Uh, Stefan, what is your Boban? You're, Mike, you're telling me that none of these people went to a website? You know, the final wager. Oh, yeah, there are the so Jeopardy many. archive, wagering calculator so before you go on the show. You made yeah. it to Jeopardy. How do you not do that? Yeah, it's not like you're just wandering about the wilderness. It's not like it's season one, two, or three. Familiarize yourself. Even if you didn't, don't be stupid, crazy Randy and bet all 6,000. 
Oh, I know state capitals. No, you don't, Randy. <laughs> Stefan, what is your Boban? Well, as we know, we all loved the movie Concussion, especially the scene in which Pittsburgh pathologist Bennett Omalu, played by Will Smith, comes up with a name for the disease he identified in the brain of the deceased Steelers Hall of Famer Mike Webster. It's very dramatic. The way that real life Omalu tells the story of the name is also pretty dramatic. Here's Omalu talking in a hotel conference room in 2013. So I sat, I sat in my bedroom one night in late... 2002. I said, okay, look, there's a possibility that some smart doctor paid very well, more knowledgeable than I am, may disprove me. So I need to give myself a backup. So I needed a name that was generic. So if I'm boxed into a corner, I could wiggle myself out and say, oh, chronic means long term, traumatic means trauma, encephalopathy means bad brain. So chronic traumatic encephalopathy really means bad brain from trauma over time. doesn't really mean anything. So I had to play both sides. You need to be smart in business. Omalu told a similar story to Frontline as part of its League of Denial documentary, saying that he had taken classes in brand management at Carnegie Mellon Business School and wanted to have a bulletproof name. Since concussion, though, Omalu has taken a few whacks in the media for overstating his creativity during the movie rollout. He responded in a piece for CNN. Omalu said he wrote, down 24 terms, none referred to a specific disease. He narrowed his choice to two, chronic traumatic brain injury and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and chose the latter because it was erudite, generic, and could be turned into an acronym. In that 2013 talk, Omalu did say he called medical literature for terms relating to brain trauma and came up with CTE from those. His second author on the landmark paper about Mike Webster, brain researcher Steve Dukoski, told the website MedPage Today, that they, quote, didn't want to call it dementia pugilistica because Webster wasn't a boxer. We spent a lot of time thinking about it and came up with chronic traumatic encephalopathy as the name because dementia footballistica doesn't have a ring to it. That terminology was used in the 70s to describe it, but it had been lost. The term wasn't totally lost. It had been mothballed, but not only since the 1970s. Media and brain experts have credited an English behavioral neurologist named McDonald Critchley for coining the term in a 1949 paper titled Punch Drunk Syndromes, the Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy of Boxers. Omalu has said previous uses didn't describe a disease, and maybe that's technically true, but it seems like a pretty clear use of the name, doesn't it? But the name seems to be even older than that. In 1940, in a paper titled Psychotic States Following Head and Brain Injury in Adults and Children, Carl Bowman and Abram Blau described the case history of a 28-year-old former semi-professional boxer who was becoming gradually more childish in behavior and was occasionally depressed, also paranoid, angry, psychotic outbursts. The diagnosis that Bowman and Blau made, chronic traumatic encephalopathy of pugilists. Omalu deserves tremendous credit for doing what he did, identifying CTE in the brains of Webster and other dead football players, confirming what should and in fact has been obvious to some researchers for more than a century, that bashing heads in the sport of football is dangerous and often life-threatening, forcing the NFL to go all tobacco industry, triggering a big if flawed settlement, and changing how millions of people view football. In that context, where the name CTE came from doesn't really matter, but it's worth pointing out that doctors have known that bashing your brain causes this disease for a very long time. Josh, what's your boban? 
So all credit for this after ball goes to Slate contributor Dan Ingber, who, apropos of not very much, sent me a list last week of scientific papers, just like your after ball. Yeah. I was, I was making a meaningful loud noise um, with titles that feature sports puns. There's Will Surgeon's Continuity of Care Strike Out or Hit a Home Run, published in the American Journal of Surgery. When Teams Fumble, Cancer Rehabilitation and the Problem of the, quote, Handoff in PM&R, the Journal of Injury Function and Rehabilitation. Also some law review articles. Fumble, how the North Carolina courts dropped the ball in McAdoo v. University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Jeffrey S. Morad, Sport Law Journal. McAdoo was a basketball player, though. Not this one. There's a McAdoo on the UNC football team. Foot faults and crunch time, temporal variance in sports law and antitrust regulation. That was in the Pepperdine Law Review. I actually thought that too, and I looked it up. There is a McAdoo on the football There's team. There's a McAdoo coaching the tried. Giants now. Yeah. There are McAdoos everywhere. There are puns to be made. This place is crazy with McAdoos. So uh, my favorite uh, one that Dan found is an article from Volume 48, Issue 3 of the John Marshall Law Review, written by a guy named William Lynch Schaller. The title of this paper is Scotty Pippen's Airball on the Role of Fiduciary Duty Law in Illinois Professional Liability Cases. The article begins with an epigraph from A Midsummer Night's Dream. This is thy negligence. Still thou mistakest or else committest thy knaveries willfully. It then continues, policing doctrinal divides has been a frequent preoccupation of the Illinois Supreme Court. Perhaps the best known Illinois doctrinal conflict is found in economic loss cases beginning in earnest over 30 30 years ago. And then at this point, I just put an ellipsis and stopped reading and hit command F and search for the word Scotty Pippen. And thank goodness Pippen appears 110 times in this paper. The Illinois Appellate Court recently followed Need in Pippen versus Peterson and Haupt, a legal malpractice action in which former Chicago Bills basketball star Scotty Pippen saw 75% of his $8.7 million tort judgment disappear as a result of contributory negligence. Please tell me more, law review paper. Pippin was a transactional legal malpractice case. The transactional facts were somewhat intricate. Pippin thought he might benefit financially by purchasing an aircraft. Pippin's agent and investment advisor, Robert Lund of Lund Partners, introduced Pippin to law firm Peterson and Haupt and its well-known name partner, Pierre Peterson. All right. I just can't do this anymore. <laughs> I was sorry. wondering. So something to do with buying an airplane. He, he wanted to buy this airplane. And then he got got screwed in the transaction involving the airplane. So when I was reading this, what came to mind was uh, this clip from The Simpsons, which we will play now. Homer, I'm afraid you'll have to undergo a coronary bypass operation. Say it in English, Doc. You're going to need open-heart surgery. Spare me your medical mumbo-jumbo. We're going to cut you open and tinker with your ticker. Could you dumb it down a shade? (laughs) (laughs) So I went to Google... I went to Google and just Googled Scotty Pippen airplane thing. And I came up with an article that was suitably dumb for me to understand. 2000, 2011. And, that, and that's how Josh invented Vox. <laughs> Scotty Pippen had an airplane company called Air Pip. Uh, wins lawsuit. Well, that, that makes sense. Good name. Former NBA basketball star Scottie Pippen has won a $2.37 million judgment against a Miami businessman in a Miami company. In 2010, widespread media covered – that's not even in English. I can totally understand this. 
widespread media covered a Cook County jury, jury verdict for Pippen related to the deal. He won $2 million in a malpractice case against Chicago law firm. Pippen alleged the firm failed to closely monitor his airplane purchase. He had originally sought $8 million in that case. The uh, story concludes, well, good for Pip. This is definitely a step up from selling his Beanie Baby collection. Thank you, Internet. That's really all that I have in this after ball. I, I just want to praise the Internet for being able to put this in terms that I can understand. I got something. It even added a little tidbit on his Beanie Baby. Would you have gone with Air Pip or Pip Air? I think Pip Air. I, I got something I could add. Or like Trump Air? I don't know. I would have gone with Pip this Air. Is, add, this, add it. This is an actual... Uh, announcement from the tarmac of people waiting to get on Pip Air one day. <laughs> attention, your attention, customers. Due to a uh, last second change, this Pip Air will be replaced by an Air Coo Coach uh, re- report. Pip Air has uh, reportedly self grounded itself during the last 1.8 <laughs> seconds. Air Coo Coach will be taking over. Thank you. <laughs> that was, that was, that was my comedy. Fly. I always like Coo Coach. Yeah, yeah I know. Air <laughs> <Fair> Pip. <laughs> <laughs> We love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. Please rate us. It's good to rate us. More people will find out about the show. iTunes loves it when podcasts get rated. I know. And we love it when you rate us. It's like a mean girl, iTunes. Rate us. <laughs> Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook, facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. Executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Members on Mobady, and thanks for listening. This week, the Edge of Sports podcast has Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You wrote that terrific piece contrasting Trump and Sanders. Do you consider yourself a Bernie Sanders supporter at this point? I like Mr. Sanders' approach. And I remember in 2008 you supported President Obama. Some big NBA personalities were supporting Hillary Clinton. Are you think Sanders more than Hillary is your political cup of tea, if you will? Hear the answer at edgeofsportspodcast.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.